0: Welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is delva Rojas, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends...
1: Giselle Donnelly. I also work at AA.
2: And... Julia Zsuzsa with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington
0: University. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Today, it's just the three of us. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you. The reason why it's just the three of us is, is that we have commemorated the second anniversary of the beginning of, of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine recently, and we wanted to pause and reflect on what we've learned over those past two years and also on what the outlook for the future might look like. And, and perhaps one way of starting that conversation is to go to Giselle and ask her about the most recent developments on the battlefield and what they likely suggest about the future path of the war.
1: Thanks, Talibor. And uh, this is also pretty much the second anniversary of the Eastern Front podcast. So there are two birthdays to mark. The situation in Ukraine probably isn't as bad as many people make it out to be. Uh, There are some serious problems, most of which stem from the cutoff of U.S. weaponry. In places like Advika, the Ukrainians have run short of artillery shells, which has allowed the Russians to advance and take the city, the very small city. This is not Unlike Bakhmut earlier in the last year, the Russians played an enormous prize for a piece of terrain that has no strategic value, really, but in Putin's mind has political salience. He wants to be able to show that Russia is advancing and Russia is winning. It's part of his propaganda campaign as well, which is succeeding, unfortunately, particularly in the United States, which we can return to later in the program. But there are many things to be cheered about. The Ukrainians have essentially nullified the part of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, which it hasn't actually sunk. Uh, So the ability of Russian naval power to influence the conflict is quite minimal. Russian air power, and this is especially war Because the Ukrainians are also running low on air defense, and they have to concentrate that on the defense of cities and industrial sites and so forth. So the Russians are beginning to achieve tactical air supremacy or superiority local and episodic supremacy, but really for the first time are able to use their uh, numbers of aircraft to support ground maneuver. So that's a bad thing. Looking forward, into the war, I would say there are a couple of possibilities. The optimistic outcome is that the Ukrainians will be able to stand their ground, exact a severe price for any Russian advances or attacks, and that the United States will get this act together and begin to resupply the Ukrainian army here with the weapons it needs, not only in terms of replenishing artillery stocks, but finally giving the green light to long-range Strike weaponry, things that could reach into Crimea, which still remains a point of extreme vulnerability for the Russians. So the Ukrainians, if supplied, still have very good prospects. But the fate, and of course, the Ukrainians are a long way from negotiating or surrendering, even under duress from Western European capitals. The other X factor is how quickly Europe, and especially Western Europe, can regenerate an arms production capacity, not so much for the year, but for the longer term, to be able to sustain supplies to the Ukrainian forces. So looking at the overall tactical picture, it's still you know anybody's contest to win. And I think the Ukrainians still have greater possibilities than do the Russians. This is probably a minority view and many of the party of Putin in the West both amongst politicians, but also amongst the analysts, are riding high at the moment. But I think that as at the beginning of the war, their appraisal of Russian prospects is way too rosy. So that's my hopeful scenario. Less likely, likely would be a Ukrainian collapse. And maybe the most likely is that the Ukrainians will have to grudgingly give ground and that they'll be in a worse position a year from now.
2: Maybe we can Add to that not just the United States' lack of aid, but also the latest news. Off European aid or lack of aid. We know that the EU has created a fund for artillery for Ukraine and that they already said months ago that they're not going to be able to get close to the 1 million rounds. Now this morning Ukraine announced that they've only received a third of what was initially promised which was a third in the first place which means that the EU has failed to deliver even close to what North Korea has delivered over the last few months to Russia, to the other side. And we see in the light of this failure, an initiative from the Czech president in parallel to the EU to put together rounds of ammunition in France, whose I've seen with positive eyes over the last few weeks, particularly trying to assume a little bit more leadership has lifted its veto for the EU. EU to buy rounds of ammunition from outside the EU, read the United States. So in the coming weeks, we might see, as a hopeful sign, the EU shopping in the United States in the absence of US aid. However, we also see in the context of absence of ammunition, we see Zelensky saying, it's because of this we've lost Avdivka and three more villages ever since the news of Avdivka have been taken by russia ukraine has also said that they will be unable to defend the new grain corridor to deliver grain to the developing world because they don't have the ammunition to resupply or to hold the line in the black sea per se and this all comes basically two years into the war when we have in Europe, and, and this is my cue to focus this time on Germany, not just both of you, but, but also me, because now we know two years in that if Germany would have shifted its economy to 5%, maybe 10% war footing, not 100% like Russia or 80%, but 5 to 10%, we would have been able... In Europe to produce the aid that the Ukrainians would have needed and we failed at that whatsoever because Germany continues to say it's not just about the long range weapons that we see the drama unfolding every other day but they're saying we're not at war I don't know if you remember we've had a few guests over the past few months who said oh no the war is really far away from Germany and German thinking and it's Germany with its industrial capacity that can make a difference aid from Estonia or even from Poland will not cut it. And so in this light, in the absence anytime soon of U.S. aid or sufficient EU aid, we might see things unraveling faster than Europeans, I guess, are
1: ready for. Or Let me just make it darker. I doubt the ability of Western Europe, and Germany in particular, to quickly produce weaponry at the scale and of the sort that the Ukrainians need. It really is almost, I don't know, 90% down to the United States. Europe has demilitarized for 30 years and does not have the industrial capacity to supply the Ukrainians with what they need easily. So this is not to let the Europeans off the hook, but, but simply to understand that it's going to be hard for them to step in to the role that, that only the United States can play. I think
0: that's partly a choice, isn't it? Like, we've been in this war for two years, and if it had been taken, you know, as seriously as people like us were suggesting it should have been taken, we could have been in a very different place. I mean, I understand that the industrial base in Europe is atrophied, but so is the U.S. one. I mean, like, you know, like, fingers were not being produced for close to two decades, then U.S. after the beginning of, of, of the full-scale invasion placed in order, and Raytheon, has to build a place again, like to manufacture those things, has to hire workers, has to train workers, and so it's going to deliver stingers in 2026. I mean, like, these things do take time, and so you have to sort of look at what Europeans have been doing over the past two years, and and so now there's this talk of, you know, sort of ramping up munition production, you know, two years into the war, like, we sort of realized that we have limited stocks and, and are not really producing enough. There is this conversation about the European peace for facility which has grown somewhat 16 billion euros or something and and i mean if you, if you sort of like think through the sheer idiocy of how it was sort of set up that you basically like reward countries for like sending their old stuff, and they get reimbursed, but there isn't a the sort of attached requirement to buy new stuff necessarily. And and that was actually I think like one of the sort of reasonable complaints that the Germans have had about this scheme that uh, it doesn't necessarily flow into you know manufacturing, building, buying new stuff. But the limiting factor in any event is the sheer size of it. I mean, what's 16 billion like in the sort of grand scheme of things. Like when when COVID hit, three months into the past, Pandemic, Angela Merkel and President Macron sort of struck a deal about the recovery and resilience facility you know 750 billion euros to be sort of injected into the EU economy over the course of the subsequent seven years, on top of the EU budget, almost doubling the EU budget, and you know, it's very unclear to me that like any of that spending has to do with like post-pandemic recovery. It's just sort of like stuff that politicians wanted to spend money on, and and you know, they were able to make it happen. And now we are having sort of unending fight about whether like 16 billion should maybe be 20 billion, and and it's, it's it's sort of like it's order of magnitude from the sort of size of the problem that Europeans are confronting. And, and, and that, to me, I think bodes really poorly for the Ukrainians. I, th- you know, thankfully, haven't come full circle from being initially despondent about Ukraine at the beginning of the war to being completely despondent again. I, I think the likelihood of Russians overrunning the Ukrainians, that likelihood is pretty small. But I think what will happen is that they will realize sooner or later that they are essentially on their own. That. Western promises aren't worth the paper they've been written on and they'll they'll they sort out their affairs going forward accordingly and, and, you know, won't have the same sort of window of opportunity to engage with the Ukrainians and bring them into the fold as we would have had if we had actually stood with them for as long as it as it took to win this war.
2: Bor I'm glad you brought up the EU Recovery Fund and I promise I'll pivot from there to NATO because we need to talk about that too in the context of Ukraine prospects for 2024. But when it comes to the recovery fund, I was actually recently looking at the numbers. So we have this huge recovery fund, the biggest funding ever the EU has adopted, the biggest one in the world until a couple of months later, Biden brought in Build Back Better. And with that funding, the hundreds of billions of euros, at the same time, with the adoption of that funding, the European Defense Fund, which is unrelated, to Ukraine, but it's about Europeans investing into their own defense, was cut from 14 billion in five years, over five years, to 8 billion in 2021. Then the full-scale invasion comes along, and six months into it, members of the European Parliament are issuing a resolution asking for that specific funding, the meager 7.9 billion euros to be increased, given a full-scale war in Europe. And guess what? never went through so we're still at the same issue and now we're looking at the Baltic countries digging trenches and reinforcing their border in the context of 2024 and the fear of Trump re-coming to power and NATO becoming what would we call it obsolete non-functioning it's not clear to me so even if Ukraine will be able with some funding in the best case scenario to largely hold the line the line might move all across the Nipro River as in the scenarios that we discussed in the first few weeks of the war and then we have a NATO summit in which The Biden administration has said, don't even put Ukraine membership on the table, not even discussing it at this point, at least. So no prospect for Ukraine, given all of that and 10 years of war. Unclear what's going to happen to the country after US elections. No commitment from allies and a NATO alliance in which, and this is the cue for NATO, it looks like the United States and the UK have just supported this, the 21 countries within the NATO alliance, to be naming Mark Rutte, the current Prime Minister of the Netherlands, as the next NATO Secretary General, from a country where he has been Prime Minister for 13 years, that has never even tried to reach 2%, and from a person who has publicly said that he is ready to go back to business with Russia as soon as it's possible. And so we might be looking at a NATO either dysfunctional or non-existent under Trump and a deal in which it won't even matter, 2%, no 2%, because the eastern flank countries are the ones under possible attack. They're giving more than 2%. But now we're having essentially, and this is the first time in history, the eastern European, central eastern Europeans at odds with the United States. 10, 11 of them are not supporting Mark Rutte, but supporting someone else from central in Eastern Europe, that is not being reverse supported by the Americans and the Brits. So that's not great.
0: In, in the interest of sort of pushing the conversation forward towards perhaps being being sort of constructive and trying to offer solutions, I would like to sort of reflect on what is the sort of best case scenario under the circumstances, which is that Congress approves aid to Ukraine, uh, the Biden administration, you know, remove some of the restrictions that we've been sort of placing on that on that military assistance in terms of Weapon systems in terms of either know ukraine striking targets inside of russia and so on and so forth i mean arguably that will sort of change the picture on the battlefield she said how likely is it and through which procedural legislative avenues it is possible to actually see this supplemental bill helping ukraine get through and signed into law in the in the foreseeable
1: future? For reasons that I couldn't justify, I'm somewhat optimistic about those. And I think that there will be a vote on the supplemental in the House. I think the political pressure will exact that. It will pass with more than 300 votes. And after this interruption in weapon supply, uh, which will take some time to remedy, that American weaponry will begin to flow again. I think the number of... Of kind of crazy procedural measures that are floating around the blogosphere or the exosphere or whatever around Washington is an indication of the political will behind it. And I don't think that you know a procedural fix to what's been a political standoff seems unlikely to me. I don't think that among the MAGA, ultrawide Republicans, I think some of the steam is going out of the anti-Ukraine stand. It has been a cultural issue more than a serious foreign policy question. And so I think the most likely path will be for people to come around to doing the right thing after having exhausted all the alternatives.
2: Is the cultural thing something that is fostered by Russia? Is it a success of Russian investment into disinformation? Or is there another way in which someone has succeeded to make this or it just succeeded to become a partisan issue.
1: They're so deeply intertwined. It's hard to sort of quantify. The Russians have helped to create the MAGA phenomenon. They've had to foment it and foster it, and they're taking advantage of it. But there is an underlying domestic political divide that pre existed any Russian influence campaigns and would still be there if Russia disappeared or lost the war. And it's also because the... Cultural war issues are breaking poorly for Republicans. This is going to be a weird connection. But things like the in vitro fertilization decision by the Alabama Supreme Court or some of the abortion laws, not just the... Supreme Court ruling, sort of make the MAGs look like a bigger threat to common sense, stability, the kind of lives that most Americans want to read. It reminds me a bit of the 1680s, where Charles II was able to steal the headlines from his opponents and make them appear as the danger and the arbitrary government intruding party, the threat to liberty. And I think The Trumpistas are beginning to cross the line from being protectors of people's liberties to a threat to civilians' rights. So, you know, in this... Broader domestic socio-cultural landscape. I think the Ukraine expression of mega dissatisfaction is one of the first things that will fall to the wayside. I
0: hope. Let's hope it, it does, because it strikes me that those cultural forces are strong indeed, and it would take you know iterative election defeats to unteach anti- new habits that that are entrenching themselves. I mean, if you think about you know the extent to which House Republicans have been preoccupied with hunter biden burisma ukraine and and how that has been a conduit in part for russian disinfo operations most recently exemplified by sir Smirnoff. I mean, it's sort of hard to see that just go away we have you know we have friends who are conservatives republicans in good standing who kind of accept this new cultural environment as a given and are trying to do their best to make the case for sort of engaged US foreign policy and US leadership in the world, like on that sort of marker ground and might be having some successes here and there, but it's not a fair fight. But if you sort of step back from, from that, you can sort of see that there is an interaction between a sort of conservative information ecosystem that is increasingly receptive to Russian narratives, Russian disinfo, you know, the sort of Tucker Carlson style of nonsense and the increased skepticism about military aid to Ukraine, about U.S. involvement in the in the world more broadly. And, and in a way, unless we address that sort of Descend of Republicans and conservatives into into sort of this deeper cultural and informational morass, I don't think we can sort of rely on that same political movement to be the voice of internationalism and thoughtful foreign policy.
1: No, I, I quite agree. The old Republican party is not coming back. The new Republican mega party, the Trump party, is not a winner. And so my thesis is, as the campaign season brings Trump back to people's conscience, it's like the more that they look at Trump's craziness, the more objectionable it will become to people. Be. And I think the Ukrainians will be the beneficiary of an overplayed, exhausting, ugly MAGA party.
0: But wouldn't that require also sort of Democrats stepping up in a major way and owning the issue and, and resourcing it appropriately?
2: Let me run by you two two scenarios, possible scenarios that I see and that I hear people including in Ukraine talking about and tell me if I'm wrong and if there's a third one that is more positive, something to work towards. So the first scenario is Biden stays in power and wins a second term. That means so far he's been unable to convince Congress to continue aid that is again just enough to hold, let alone not close to winning all territory back, all of that. We're still two years in the war discussing whether, we're sending 20 long-range weapons, right? It's not 2,000. And so Biden stays in power. Best case scenario, the aid goes through for 2024. Big question, if we can continue this limbo with a lot of Ukrainian lives lost into 2025, and this is a bit pretty grim scenario. And then the second scenario, which I've heard people wrongly looking forward to, is the Trump scenario. Trump comes back and it means, as the Germans say, kurzer Prozess he cuts a deal it's not convenient for Ukraine but in the short term the fighting stops in the medium term this means of course that sanctions will be lifted against Russia and that Russia has all the chance and will put all its energy into regenerating its economy and its war footing so that on the first occasion either during the Trump term or whenever that happens next which is just four or five years from now we are back to square one with Russia trying to destroy Ukraine and possibly going for NATO countries next door so what's the third version or am I wrong
1: well there's a, a subtext to version one so if Putin the best he can get out of the next nine months is a straightening of his lines in eastern Ukraine can't conquer Kyiv. But Trump is defeated. I mean, Putin's efforts this year and through, certainly through November of next year, are going to be focused on trying to help Trump, among other things. If he fails in that, if Biden is reelected, what then for Putin? This is a serious question, which I don't know the answer to, but it's not good news for friend led.
0: I think that's, that's an interesting question because the, the clock is ticking, both for Putin people say Russia can sustain a longer war and... They have put Russia on the war footing and its economy on the war footing in a way we haven't done and Europeans haven't done. But at the same time, autocracies are brittle. Putin is 72, 73. I mean, you know, he is not going to get any younger. And I think that the longer this goes on, the more risks it opens up for him. And the question is whether he can kind of bring it to a victorious end by annexing you know Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia oblast, and and a sort of claim that this is now Russia. I mean that can happen under Biden presidency as well as it can happen under under Trump presidency. I mean, there's also, I mean, that sort of, you know, Ukraine fatigue in the West is a a factor regardless of who gets elected. And and I think, you know, the the more static the war is, the more there'll be willingness to sort of cut deals with or without Trump with, with, with Putin.
1: Maybe, but we don't really know what risks Putin is taking domestically and economically. The supermarket that Tucker visited and the Moscow subway didn't, look like they were sacrificing or being put on a war footing. The shelves were stocked and the metro was clean as a whistle. So some of Russia has been put on a war footing. The non-elite parts of Russia, you know, Central and Eastern Russia are feeling the effects of war. And there's a lot of Russians who have been killed, 300,000 or more, even for Russia, which has a manpower charge shortage. It's ability to mobilize its industry is short-circuited simply by the lack of workers because a lot of those guys have been dragooned into U-form. So the prospects for Putin are as murky as they are for anyone. And if his gambit to try to force a deal-making president into office fails you know, what's his plan B?
2: Maybe grinding on at a slower pace. I mean, if we're looking at the Ukrainians running out of stuff, it's a matter of the Russians are going to less use less ammunition, less rounds of ammunition, maybe they will at some point slow down the grinding on with less victims too. But the main point is keep the war going so that you don't give Ukraine a chance to be integrated in the West and you divide the West and weaken the West west from within we don't know when i was looking in january at 2024 writing an article and trying to figure out different scenarios i was saying well the front line might move in the second half of the year and then february came along and zelensky went to munich it was completely outshined or the news was was completely sidelined due to the death of Navalny. but he announced the withdrawal from avdivka and i'll give you a couple more things that stayed on my mind that I've heard over the last few days from Ukraine. Of course, we don't know what the situation will look like. The first one is a friend talking to someone on a train heading to Avdivka, a soldier saying, I'm heading to death. I don't know why I'm fighting for that. And so it's very hard. We keep talking about mobilization problems in Ukraine. But if I were a young man in Ukraine, I wouldn't know what what I'm fighting for with the prospect of everything depending on the decisiveness of Trump or Biden. And then the second thing is the big win a year and a half ago now in Kherson. Kherson under occupation was not bombed because the Ukrainians wouldn't bomb their own people. But ever since it's been liberated, it's been bombed significantly. And now over the past few weeks, as reports from Kherson emerged that don't even make it into Ukrainian media anymore, the bombing has has been so amplified that people cannot live in this city anymore and they're trying to move away and a friend called her sister to catch up who's still living there and could hear Russian drones all the time in the background while they were talking on the phone her sister was reporting that you cannot be living in a house because it's shaking all the time if it's not being destroyed and so these are the costs human and social costs that we are now now, basically, adding to our account in the West for our lack of decisiveness and the culture wars and all of that, for Ukrainians this seems far from removed. And we're talking about where the front line might stop, depending on Biden or Trump. But anytime soon, they seem to be just grinding on and the Ukrainians seem to not be able to push back in the absence of ammunitions.
0: To me, the the most infuriating part of the story is that we do have the tools to hit the Russians where it hurts. And it's not that anything we do will lead to a nuclear exchange. It's such a sort of false dichotomy which is presented to us all, like we can't escalate because then they'll respond as if the past two years told us nothing, right? Sort of like Russians, they're escalating now, like Navalny got killed because Putin thinks he can get away with it and it's always in response to weakness that you get escalation And, and, and so you have these you know, Russian Central Bank Reserve sitting in bank accounts in Belgium and, and the United States and still, you know, not going anywhere on be used for Ukraine's reconstruction. You know, weapon systems, we've been denying them, long-range artillery. And if that doesn't change, then I think it's almost sort of reasonable to expect that, that yeah, Russia can probably do this longer than we can. Like, you know, we'll eventually get tired and distracted and, and move on. And that's when he'll claim victory.
2: Yeah, at a slower pace or, you know, by but- with less victims, but nevertheless,
1: okay. The United States and freeers have generally prevailed in history's long, grinding, terrible, nasty wars. That's not much of a consolation. Age. Sometimes
2: it takes a few decades where we're from, but <laughs> but yes, they have prevailed.
0: But it usually takes a Pearl Harbor, right, to get them acting.
1: I've written that many times in my life and paid the price for writing. So <laughs> I'll let you say it this time. It depends on like you know
0: how long your sort of sweep of history is. The recent past, you know, I don't think the free society has prevailed in Afghanistan or in Vietnam, and there is a real risk that sort of add a decapitated, diminished Ukraine into the list of those not exactly success stories.
1: True, but they're qualitatively different as conflicts. It's very difficult to say that Ukraine is not part of Europe, and thus absolutely central, not only to American security interests, but to the security interests of the liberal international order, or whatever we're calling it today. So the stakes are immense, and the opportunity remains in. The future of the Russian Empire is not particularly certain Uh, i can see a further crack up that stems from defeat in this war in moscow Giselle, from your lips to god's ears to your ears (laughs) make it so delibor throw a lightning bolt from me delibor from me giselle donnelly and Yulia Zosa. thank you for
0: listening to the eastern front a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod written as one word and don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.